Our ushers are bringing around Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you today, feel free to raise your hand. We would love for you to be able to have God's Word open in front of you so that you can see the things we are preaching and discussing this morning are rooted firmly in the Word of God, which is our only testimony of who Christ is and what He wants for us. So uh, go ahead and raise your hand, and they'll bring that to your seat if you are in need of one. Well, we had a wonderful, albeit cold, morning on the hill this, uh, this year. We woke up about 6.30, went up to the hill, and were able to have a, a worship service out um, in front of the rising sun, and a little bit different than years gone past. Usually, um, the measure of the fun we had on the hill is proportionate to the number of mosquito bites that we brought back down from the hill, but it was so cold this morning, and I think the mosquitoes were, were smart, and they stayed home, so we didn't have to deal with them very much at all, which was nice. Uh, I, I love reading uh, about the, the power that Christ displayed in his earthly ministry, how he could preach and cast out demons. Well, we didn't cast out any demons this morning on the hill, but we did uh, cast out some turkeys. Uh, Pastor Paul was preaching, and we had a whole flock of wild turkeys that were uh, up on the side of the hill that decided to uh, raise up a fuss and then run, run away from us as we were preaching the good word of God. So if you've never been up there with us on an early Sunday morning on Easter, we Really encourage you to try that next year. It is a huge blessing. And thank you to everybody who was involved with uh, putting on our Easter breakfast this morning and blessing those who came a little bit early with the meal. It's always wonderful to fellowship with our church family and to be in your presence, to be able to share what God is doing in one another's lives. So thank you for participating in that. We're going to be taking a break from 1 Corinthians this morning. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. So if you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles there now. Hebrews, chapter 2. If you were not able to join us on Friday for the Good Friday worship service, I pray that you are still able to spend a, a much of that day in reflection upon the importance of the cross uh, for God's plan for redemption. The cross was essential to what Christ did to free us from sin. It is a wonderful irony that at the very core of Christianity, we find the cross, the tool by which our beloved Savior was killed. It is ironic for in what seemed like defeat, Jesus' death and suffering earned salvation and life for sinners like us. Just as much as the cross is a symbol of Christ's victory over sin, so too is the empty tomb, which signified his ability to rise on the third day just as he had proclaimed he would. In accordance to the scripture, on that Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave alive and well, and in doing so, he rightly earned the title that many theologians use to describe him. He is Christus Victor, the one who conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death, setting us free from both and vanquishing the powers of darkness in a way that brought immeasurable glory to the name of our God. But many misunderstand the victory that Christ won that day. Three questions that we hope to answer through our study of the text this morning. First of all, who or what did Jesus triumph over? We know that he is Christos Victor. Who did he defeat? What did he defeat when he went to the cross for us? Why is this such good news? That's the second question we're going to delve into this morning. Why is it such good news that Christ was willing to suffer on our behalf? And thirdly, what exactly are Christians saved from? And the next question that flows out of this is, what are we saved into? So let's think of those things as we put our minds on Hebrews chapter 2. It is fitting that we look 
uh, at the letter to the Hebrews for insight in this matter. The Hebrew believers who received this letter had professed trust in Jesus Christ, but after a time began to waver in their faith. They began to drift away from the truth of the gospel, in part because of the great persecution that was coming upon many Hebrew believers who had grew up Jewish but recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish faith. He was the messianic uh, prophecy fulfilled, the one that God had declared years and years before would come to take his place on the throne of David and rule forever. Those Jews who did not believe that Jesus was Messiah began to exhibit much hatred and distrust for those Christian Jews. And so they began to lose their jobs. They began to experience separation from their families and disenfranchisement. And so many of them were beginning to waver in their faith, thinking that it would be easier for them to just simply practice their trust in Yahweh as Jews rather to continue to embrace the truth of Jesus Christ as the messianic fulfillment of that Judaism. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Let's pray briefly and ask the Lord to, to guide our study of this text. Lord God, we are so very grateful that you have brought us together today to worship your high and holy name. For many, the Easter holiday means little more than a few days off of work, a break from studies and school. But for those who look at Easter and at Scripture through regenerated eyes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ means so much more. And so, Lord God, just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we now understand that we too can walk in newness of life. We want to rejoice in that mighty truth. We want to thank you for what you have done in and through us. And we want to live in such a way, God, that we recognize the weight of that sacrifice, that we are now living in response to this transformation by being obedient to your word, by living in such a way that we honor the sacrifice that you have made and the commands that you have given to us. So do not let us look at the scripture today as some how-to book on how to live an ethical life that might profit us. Instead, let us look at the scripture as the revelation of who you are to sinners like us, that this is the bridge by which you are giving us to fellowship with you and interact with you. The scriptures which declare Christ, Christ who shed his blood so that we might be washed clean and come near to a holy God. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins with a warning. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And the consequence of not listening to this warning is spelled out too. If we do not pay close attention to what we have heard, we will drift away from it. Think about for a minute how easy it is for man to forget what he has learned, to drift away from that which he once knew. We lose focus. We lose track of what we have come to know. 
and many important matters in life become like a mystery again to us. If it has been a while since you have opened up your yearbook from high school, you might be amazed to just thumb through and see so many faces that at one point were a critical part of your life. These individuals that you shared hours and hours of time with, that you confided in, that you, you felt so connected to, and now many of those faces are like a distant memory. You might not have thought of those people for years. You, you might not even be able to put a name to those faces anymore, even though they were at one part, part of your life so crucial to you. That might be the case, or you might be young, and you might say, I look at my yearbook and I, I know all those people still. I talk to them still. But if you're old like me, you begin to move on. Life changes. And you look back at those people that used to be so integral to who you are and what you did, and you struggle to even remember some of the things that you shared with them, some of the times that you were able to enjoy by their side. Human beings are exceptional at forgetting important things. But the author of Hebrews isn't really addressing our general problem of forgetfulness. He's speaking specifically about one very important message, one particular object of our attention that we cannot afford to overlook or misunderstand. And so verses 3 through 4 of Hebrews 2 describe some of the important characteristics of this message that we need to be very diligent to pay attention to. Verse 3 says that it was declared by the Lord. So this message is not something that we just observed in our day-to-day -day happenings. It's not some law of nature that we acquire an understanding for through trial and error or through experimentation. This thing that we have heard came from a very lofty source. It was declared to us by the Lord. The Lord, of course, is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. He is Lord of lords and King over all kings. Meaning that Jesus is not simply one of many authorities that God gives to bring order upon the world. Jesus is the supreme authority. There is no other that has say about what Jesus does. He has dominion over all things. It is this one whom God himself esteemed so very highly. You remember when he was baptized and the Spirit came down from the heavens and a voice boomed from the heavens saying, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well Pleased. It is this one whom God himself esteems so highly who preached this important message that we must not lose track of. The Lord Jesus is not the only one who speaks of this message, however. It was attested to us by those who heard, says verse 3. The, the author of Hebrews is referring there at the end of verse 3 to the prophets and to the apostles. These also have declared to us this critical message we must not forget. John 5 we see that John the Baptist was born to testify about this message. In Luke 24, verse 27, Moses and the prophets bore witness to the message we're speaking about. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the 11 disciples, and by extension the church of God, were sent into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the ends of the earth to proclaim this message. John 5, 39, the scriptures bear witness to this message. So Jesus isn't the only one who speaks about it. The prophets and the apostles bear witness to it as well. And thirdly, it was proved. This message is not just theoretical. It was proved by signs and wonders, miracles and spiritual giftings. Many of those who proclaimed the message were enabled by God to do miraculous and unexplainable things. They were able to heal the sick when medicine could not. They were able to even raise those who had died. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They overcame the laws of nature. And by these displays of divine power, their testimony to this message should have been held in greater esteem. 
But that still doesn't tell us what that specific word is. What is this prophetic message that we have heard? Friends, it is the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is this prophetic word, this message that we cannot afford to look away from. It is a a truth, a reality that has had such impact on who we are that if we lose track of it or allow it to become corrupted in our minds and our thoughts, then it will do us great harm. What message carries more weight than the gospel? Which message has as much power to transform a heart or a mind? Which message has been delivered with such deliberate effort and preserved over the ages with the same kind of diligence as the gospel message has? The true meaning of the gospel is what is at stake for these Hebrew Christians who are receiving this letter, encouraging them to not waver from their faith. And in all honesty, it happens to be at stake for what is passing for Christianity in our day and age as well. The gospel is at stake in these verses. Think about this, friends. In nearly every town in the United States of America, you can find a church that claims to preach the gospel today. In the vast majority of hotel rooms in this nation, you can open the drawer next to your bed and you'll probably find a copy of what? The Bible that declares this gospel message. Today is a nationally recognized holiday that commemorates what? the resurrection, the absolute climax of the gospel story. There is a gospel crisis in the land. And the crisis is not that the gospel isn't available for people. It's not that the scriptures are being obscured and that people cannot read it for themselves. It is not that the gospel hasn't been heard. The crisis is this. People have heard the gospel, but they have not paid careful attention to it. And as a result, they have drifted away from that gospel, even if they are not aware that they have done so. It is a sad day when you can ask the great majority of Christians if they can describe in simple terms the gospel that saves them, the gospel that is foundational to their identity and salvation. And so many of those Christians that you would ask would struggle to even start to articulate it. The gospel declares that we were created by a just and a holy God, a God in whom there is no evil, in whom there is no wickedness or weakness. And though that mighty God loves his creation, he loves us and blesses us, we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. Because the one we have offended is the one who gave us life, such an offense is punishable by death. We deserve to be removed from the presence of this holy God. We do not deserve to be near to him because he is holy and pure and set apart. And yet we, as sinful lawbreakers, are corrupt. We have wickedness within us. So we don't deserve to be in the presence of God, let alone to have an intimate relationship with Him. What is worse, nothing that we do can reverse the effects of our sin. We need a Savior who is greater than ourselves to come and do what we cannot do. We need Him to redeem us. Thankfully, God loves His people to such an extent that He was willing to send Jesus Christ 
his own son to take on a human nature and dwell with us, fulfilling the law perfectly in his active obedience, as Pastor Paul preached about this morning. Jesus did what we could not do. He came to be more than a role model for us. He came to pay a debt we could not pay. He came to offer his perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty of death on our behalf. He was convicted of crimes that he did not commit and he allowed himself to suffer, to be executed for sin. That is what we commemorate on Good Friday, Christ's willingness to be slain in our place. And then to fulfill scripture and to fulfill his own prophetic words, Jesus proved his power over sin and death and he rose from the tomb three days after he was put to death, revealing himself to many over the course of the next 40 days in physical form to prove that it was not just a rumor. And after he had declared himself to be alive and risen, he ascended to be with God again in heaven. And he will be there until he returns to earth to cast away sin and death once and for all. All who respond to his redeeming work by putting their faith in him as their Lord and Savior will experience the forgiveness that only God can give. And by his blood that was shed upon that cross, they will be washed clean and counted as righteous. That, in brief, is the gospel message. That is the truth that gives us hope. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You know what it means to neglect, right? How will we escape the penalty of death if we give this gospel of salvation less care and less attention than it deserves? There are different ways that we can neglect this good news. There is an utter neglect of the gospel. Some take this stance. The number is growing each day of people who take this attitude and posture towards the gospel. They declare, I need no saving. Or the kind of saving I need, God can't do it. They, ne they neglect the gospel by rejecting it outright. They turn away from it, refusing to believe in God or refusing to believe in his mode of redemption. They're not going to accept Jesus as their savior. That is utter neglect. But there is a different kind of neglect that I feel is far more widespread, and it is a subtle neglect. A subtle neglect takes the posture of, well, yes, I need saving. Who doesn't? But I need saving from the things that I don't like. I need saving from those things that make my life less happy than I want it to be. And I want to be saved, but I want to be saved on my terms. I want to be able to negotiate the way by which I might be redeemed. There is within this subtle neglect of the gospel a refusal to be humble before God and to take the gospel for what it is meant to be. It is the second kind of neglect that Hebrews 2 is warning us about. This is not the neglect of the God-hater, of the bitter atheist, the belligerent rebel. It is the neglect of the person who sees that there is a difference between right and wrong, who acknowledges there is a God and that God has power. 
but a lack of clarity about who that God is and what he wants causes many to drift from the truth and at times, without even realizing it, to plant their faith on something very other than the solid rock of Jesus Christ. While there are several aspects of the gospel message that a person can neglect and drift away from, the author of Hebrews makes it clear to us which portion we are most likely to neglect. He shows us where his focus is at. Verse 3, every transgression or disobedience receives a just, meaning a fair retribution. What is he speaking of there? He's speaking of our sin. Our sin is the true problem. It is the whole reason we need salvation. It is the whole reason we need the gospel. In order for Jesus to act as Savior for his people, there must be something critically important that he is saving us from, right? Here is where people begin to drift away from the truth of the gospel. If they have not paid careful attention to what they have heard. Four years ago, 2017, Pastor Paul and I were down south attending the Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church. And uh, the Shepherds Conference is a gathering of like-minded biblical men who want to preach the gospel in a way that has integrity, in a way that gives glory and honor to God. So we gather together and there's just wonderful preaching for the duration of that week and declaration that, that God's word is enough for us, that Christ is all that we need. And so you kind of expect, with a, a message that bold and so different from what the world is saying, you expect there to be protesters at an event like that. You expect people from the world to come and say, these people are hateful, they've got it wrong, we should just love everybody and let people do what they want to do. There's no difference between what I do and what anybody else does. People should just be free to do what they want to do. We were protested that year, but it was not the kind of protest I expected. We were protested and picketed by a group called Abolish Human Abortion, which might seem very ironic. Abolish Human Abortion is a, a very pro-life group uh, that believes that abortion is wrong and that unborn life needs to be protected for, uh, in all measures. And that was very strange to me as an attender of this conference, knowing that several of the pastors in that very conference were on the front lines of, of doing the hard work of trying to help young mothers and fathers understand that life is precious and that abortion should not be an option for those who love the Lord and value life. And yet these people were holding signs up and picketing against what we were preaching that week. Why? Because they believed that the sole focus of every person who has a right mind should be to protect unborn life and that should rise above every other cause in the world. So preaching about the gospel is good, but it's not important enough because it doesn't focus on the abolition of abortion. So they were picketing all these pastors. A very strange and weird scenario, but I think it illustrates well what I'm getting at here and what Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 is getting at. That if we are not careful, some cause maybe even one that is a really extremely good cause, one that we should support and be behind. You know if you go to this church that we're very against abortion here, that we value human life and that children are very critical to God's plan for filling the earth and displaying His glory. And those children don't have to be out of the womb for us to protect them. We should protect them at the point of conception. But 
we can let very good things displace the most important thing if we are not careful. As critical as the fight to defend unborn life is to us, you can see how letting the, that issue eclipse the gospel is distorting the idea of what Jesus came to do. When we lose focus on the gospel as it is presented to us in the word of God, we run the risk of gradually redefining its very aim and purpose. When we forget the weight of our sin and the great cost that Jesus paid to rid us of it, we make the gospel into a cheap caricature of what it really is. If we lose sight of that which we should pay great attention to, we might start to believe that Jesus came to save us from discomfort. We might begin to believe that it is not about holiness so much, it's about happiness. God wants us smiling. He wants us comfortable and safe. And so you begin to get a different kind of gospel, a gospel that is often called the prosperity gospel because prosperity is put before Christ in that movement. Our enemy in that way of thinking is not necessarily the wickedness in us. It is our inability to make our own will be done and our own kingdom to come. The danger in this is that salvation then becomes a means to greater self-idolatry. Jesus is not the focus of our love and affection. We aren't devoted to him. We only see Christ then as a means to an end, which is ultimately us on the throne of our own little life. Us getting our kingdom the way that we want it. Prosperity Gospel teaches you how to manipulate God so that you might get your prayers answered exactly how you want them. Never mind that stuff that Jesus teaches about thy will be done and thy kingdom come. You just have to have the right degree of faith and then God has to give you what you want. You see how what seems at first to be good with just a little twisting and distorting can become an enemy to the true gospel. If we drift from what we are to stay focused upon. If we ignore what we have heard, then we might start to believe that Jesus came to save us from the injustices that are being committed against us in this world. And that is probably one of the loudest voices crescendoing right now in our culture. The idea of critical race theory begins to stake its claim on the Christian church in today's age. And the gospel is starting to be thought of primarily as a means to make sure that everyone is treated the same and that there is an equal distribution of wealth and that people all have the same opportunities regardless of race. And what is wrong with that? It overlooks the true crisis. Not that we aren't good enough to one another, but that we aren't faithful to God. Salvation is not about securing our rights. It's about the fact that we have lost all of our rights by rebelling against God. While true justice and equality flow from redeemed hearts and minds, just as those who put the gospel first will have a heart for the unborn, so too will those who put the gospel first be a people who care about equality and care about righteousness and care about justice for all. But when we allow justice and social issues to displace the gospel, we have displanted the root of our salvation. True justice flows from redeemed hearts and mind. We must not take the gospel hostage and pretend that, this, that God's true mission was whatever mission is most popular in whatever day and age it happens to be. 
If we lose track, friends, if our focus drifts away from the gospel of Jesus, then we might start to believe that Jesus came to save us only from our sins without addressing the bigger issue of our own personal sinfulness. Do you see the subtle difference here? It's easy to miss. It is small shades of meaning like this that make it necessary for us to pay very close attention to what we have heard. Does Jesus save people from their sins? Absolutely he does. Matthew 26, 27 through 28. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As Peter, the apostle, declared in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Christ does wash our sins away at the cross if we put our faith and trust in him. But it was not enough to cancel the material evidence of the outward stumble that we properly call sins. Where do sins come from? They come from a wicked heart, don't they? They spring forth from that which is corrupt inside of us. Our disobedience is tied to our sinful nature. Thanks to our representative Adam, the first man, from whom all people descended, his failure corrupted his nature. And our nature flows precise, follows precisely the same pattern. Listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel as he describes the beauty of the new covenant that was sealed with the blood of Jesus, a covenant designed not only to practically erase the sinful things we do, which are harmful to society, which make us unhappy, but to actually change us from the inside out. Listen to these words, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see how that is different than Jesus just coming in and erasing all of our sins and giving us a nice blank slate to start with over again. Now there is something in us that must change. And it is something that no self-help group can change. It is something that no regiment of personal discipline can change. It's something that only Christ Jesus can change through the power of the Spirit. It was not enough to cancel the material evidence of the outward stumble. Jesus did not just die for our sins. He died for our sinfulness. He died to fundamentally change our identity, to bring us to spiritual life from spiritual death. And so this gospel that we must cling to so ferociously is not a just behavior adjustment for us. It is an actual transformation of our character, our being, and our identity. When Jesus calls a sinner to repentance, he pulls them across the battle lines of evil into good. 
redeeming them that so we will no longer be God's enemies, raging against his rule and doing everything in our power to break free from his dominion and sovereignty. But now, in the light of Christ, we would instead, from that day forward, sit at God's own table with him as his child, washed clean and imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this is more than just erasing our mistakes. It's redefining our very nature and character. It is victory over our sinfulness. It is a triumph over our stubborn hearts of stone. So one of the great risks of letting our attention drift from the gospel that we have heard as it is proclaimed in the scriptures is that we forget what we are being saved from. We make Jesus the hero of some other cause that we feel strongly about. And in doing so, we fail to trust him for the salvation that we need the most. What is Jesus saving us from when he goes to the cross? Let's look at it in two stages this morning. Properly, and I want us to all think carefully about this, we need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from God. I know that might shock some of you to hear that. You might think, what? That can't be. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Why would I need to be saved from God? But what has God revealed about himself to us? What have the angels and the prophets and the apostles whom God has used to communicate who he is and what he wants for us, what have they said about this God? They have told us that this God is a judge, that he cares about what is right and what is wrong, and that he hates sin. God isn't just annoyed by sin. It is the exact opposite of his character and nature. It is his enemy. So God must punish the wicked. Why is that important for us to understand? Because we are wicked, friends. Contrary to popular belief, we are not holy, God-like beings in and of ourselves who just need the right nurturing environment to bring out the goodness within us. No, we are born in the pattern of a sinner who rejected the command of God. And we too reject the command of not a tyrant God, not of an evil God, but of a holy and loving and pure God. When you reject that kind of leadership, you reject righteousness. And you place yourself in the camp of the wicked. We are the wicked apart from Christ. So when Jesus saves a man, he saves that man from the just wrath of a holy God, a God who stands for and defends all that is good and pure and holy. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite preachers, Presbyterian brother, says this, the last thing in the world the impenitent sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. God Saving us saves us from himself. God is love, friends, but God is also truth. The very law is a reflection of his noble character and his righteousness. Do you care about what is right? That you want God to punish what is wicked. You want him to restore the order that we as his creation have corrupted. And so there is no option for God to compromise the rules and declare that the wicked 
that the sinful things that we have done are, yeah, maybe they're not so bad after all. Let's just brush those under the rug and just continue on in fellowship. He can't do that. He will not call the darkness light even to spare us. He cannot, for God cannot lie. Salvation cannot be secured by making holiness something less than what it is. Salvation must be secured by making what is wretched into something righteous. It must come with a cleansing and a purification. Since God is a perfect judge who also has love for his people, he demonstrates that great love for us by redeeming us for our good and for his glory. So we are saved first and foremost from the righteous wrath of God, which we deserve because of our sins. Secondly, we need to be saved from our own sin nature, which we cannot overcome on our own. Friends, if we are honest with ourselves, and if our minds and thoughts and hearts are fixed upon the true gospel of Scripture, then we can declare that the enemy, our great enemy, is not something out there. It's something in here. Our great enemy is ourselves. It is such a tempting pleasure to convince our hearts that the real problem with the world is not looking back at me in the mirror. No, it's not me. It's across the aisle. It's... It's in the pew next to me. It's in the political party I'm not a part of. It's in the schemes of the rich and the powerful. It's in the people who don't look like me or talk like me or eat the kind of food that I eat. It's anywhere except in me. Because surely I can't be the real problem, right? Every detestable, evil sin that you hate, when you see it in others, is a sin that you are fully capable of committing yourselves. And the ones you are more apt to commit, the sins that you are more prone to stumble into, are often the ones you hate the most in the people around you. And if you believe what James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in chapter 3 of his letter, if you've committed any sin whatsoever, you are guilty of committing all of them. You are under the whole weight of the law of God. But that is quite an uncomfortable conversation to have with yourself. And fallen man never really has the appetite for a, discuss a discussion like that. Who wants to talk openly and honestly about their own sin? Who wants to confess how they have fallen, how they have failed, how they have dishonored truth and love? Who wants to think seriously about the depth and the consequence of our sins? Man would much rather act as though he did nothing wrong and hope that it all blows over. But there is sadly no salvation in that tact. Because sin is a wound that doesn't heal with time, friends. It takes the shedding of perfect blood. So let us think soberly on this Easter Sunday. Let us think about the brutality of the cross. And let us ask ourselves, do I honestly understand that I deserve what Jesus endured and suffered that day? Do I honestly believe that that is my right condemnation? Or do I think that what I have done is no big deal? If you have broken the law, you have not offended only your neighbor. You have offended the holiest being in existence. And it is that being to whom you owe your very existence. Your sin is greater than you probably let yourself come to terms to understand. We must not neglect such a great salvation. What does this great salvation bring, friends? To answer that question, 
we're going to get a little help from the Apostle Paul. So turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 5. I'll also have this on the screen if you don't have your Bible handy. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Let's look at the first two verses first. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You, if you have trusted in Christ, have been given this incredible gift of peace with God. You might not know the extent of it, but before you were in Christ, you were an abject enemy to the cross. And the full wrath of God was bearing down upon you. The sights were set. But in Christ, you have been redeemed from that life of wrath. You have been brought into a situation of peace with this wonderful God that we have come to know and love. Of primary importance to each of us should be the question, do I have peace with God? Have I been saved from the completely justifiable wrath of the one who has perfect dominion over all things and has promised to bring all accounts to bear in the, in the last days? So this peace is a wonderful gift, a result of the true salvation that we are called to cling closely to. And then in verse 3 of Romans 5, Paul goes on to say, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice that when we trust in Jesus Christ, peace in God is restored, but peace with the world is not. You see that? In fact, our new identity in Christ will make us fundamentally at odds with the fallen world that we still occupy. We will not fit in here anymore. We will not belong here in this world because this world is suffering from the sin of death over and over again, and that sin has been removed from us. We don't fit the way that we used to fit. Very often we drift from the gospel when we lose track of Christ's suffering on our behalf and focus instead our attention on our own suffering, which is minor in comparison. Does God want you to be happy? In an eternal sense, yes, He has redeemed you to be near to Him. But that doesn't mean that He wants to remove every single roadblock in your life so that your life might be gentle and easy without any resistance. No, you live as a redeemed person in a fallen world. And so it is not only his gift to us to be at peace with him, but it is also his gift to us to be at odds with that which is dying and wicked. That doesn't match us anymore. And we should not see that as a curse, but as a joy. It is a joy that we do not fit in. How can we neglect so great a salvation? What makes it so great? It's not that your current situational suffering is taken away. It's that the weight of sin itself has been lifted from you and you have a new heart to deal with this suffering that you are involved with now. All human beings must suffer. We've heard that phrase before probably. Nobody deserves to go through that. But is it true? Do we even believe that? Not if we know the weight of our sin. Not if we know how serious it is that we have offended the living God. 
our current situational suffering will be replaced with tomorrow's situational suffering. By the revelation of God, we know that all of that hardship will eventually pass away. But you, but who you are will not pass away. And if who you are is not defined primarily by the person and work of Jesus Christ, then who you are is still dominated by the curse of sin that you inherited from the first Adam. What consequences are there to thinking that the gospel saves you from the sins out there instead of the sin in here? First of all, if that is the way you think about the gospel, then you will never feel compelled to repent, will you? What was the message of John the Baptist as he prepared the way for Christ to come? Repent. 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 This is the first great work that God does in our heart when he makes us alive as he gives us this heart which sees our sins so differently now that we might repent of it instead of try to justify it instead of defending ourselves from it, instead of trying to hide it away or compare it to somebody more sinful than ourselves, when the Holy Spirit wakes us up from spiritual death, we see our sin and we hate it like God does. We don't want it anymore. It might still try to cling to us, but we want to do everything we can to push it out of our lives. So if you continue to have this mentality that your enemy is out there instead of in here, and you will never repent of your sin. You will never put these things before God knowing that only He can vanquish them. If you think that way, then you will always feel like a victim. If the, if the enemy is always out there, then you're always dealing with the consequence of somebody else's problem that you cannot control. But if you can step back and look at yourself clearly in the mirror of Scripture and see that your heartache and your loneliness and your dissatisfaction comes from your own sinful heart, we got a solution for that. The solution is Jesus Christ. You don't have to be this victim anymore. In fact, in intersectionality, this new way of thinking about the world almost makes it a game to see how victim you can be. And whoever is more victim than others gets to have the loudest voice in the community. And that it sounds on the surface like we're being compassionate to those who are suffering and struggling, but in reality, all that does is crescendo the voice of suffering and does nothing to solve the problem. So if the enemy is always out there, we will always count ourselves a victim, when in reality, the victim is the Lord God. He has made us and given us this perfect world to live in, and then we have corrupted it by breaking His law. We have offended Him. He deserves to punish us. So the true gospel turns our mind around. We stop thinking about ourselves as the victim and we start thinking about ourselves as the one who has been rescued by the true God. And Whatever temporary blessing you've been given by God, if the enemy is always out there and it's not in here and you never deal with the sin that is in yourself, then whatever temporary blessing you've been given by God will never ultimately be enough for you. For all the material blessings in the world lack the power to change anything at all about your sin nature and about your broken, fallen manhood. But the great salvation that we cannot afford to neglect accomplishes such an eternal work in us, friends. So how do we honor the death and the burial of resurrection today on Easter Sunday? When we rejoice in this empty tomb and we consider what transformation it brings to our lives, how do we honor that? We honor it by paying very close attention to what we have heard. 
I'm going to echo what Pastor Paul said on the mountain this morning, that if you have been taught that what you need for the Lord is love, but that you don't need doctrine, you don't need to be careful about what you think about Him, that's a dangerous thing because true love cares about the details. True love wants to know the object of that love in truth, with accuracy. So the more you understand the gospel and recognize what God is truly accomplishing in Christ, the more you will rejoice in who he is and what he has done. The greater weight will be revealed to you. You will see that this salvation is more than you could have even imagined. That the empty tomb means that you know, well, you'll never have to be in a tomb forever. You'll never be cast into the lake of fire. You'll never be away from the love and the grace of God if you are in Christ Jesus the Lord. So pay very close attention to this gospel, my friends. Do not take for granted the generosity of God displayed in the cross. And never let the world redefine what Christ has declared for us. Think again of those messengers. It was given to us by Jesus himself. It was declared by the prophets and the apostles. It was verified by signs and wonders. It has endured for thousands of years. Even though the whole world wants to snuff it out, this is the gospel that we must cling to. We don't need a revision. We don't need version 2.0. We need what God gave to us. We must cling to what we have heard and never lose track of this great salvation. Bow your heads as we close in a word of prayer. And thank you, Lord God, for all that you are doing to show yourself glorious before us today. We are impressed with your power. We are impressed with your purity. We're impressed with your compassion for us, Lord God. We can't help but be grateful this morning for all that you have done to make us yours. And so, Lord God, when the world waves disposable trinkets in front of us and tries to distract us with the things that do not matter, help us to have no heart for those things. Help us instead to cling to what is truly good, that which you have given to us free of charge because you've already paid the price in full. We love you, Lord God, and we rejoice that you are risen today. Help us to live like redeemed saints with our eyes on the cross and our heart in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.